early on in the cycle, we bought a lot of different properties, multifamily properties, retail, lots of land, zoned for various different things, did a lot of pre-development, rezoning things, entitling to higher density, and then industrial, of course. You know, we, we placed our bets, quote unquote, our bets heavily on multifamily and industrial early on in the cycle. And both have gone very well. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors, and together we partner on all of my deals. If you enjoy the podcast, give me a rating. Also, a review would be very, very much appreciated. And don't forget to like and follow me on social media. I'm pretty much you know, active on all of them, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. So you can find all my social media links and the show notes on my website, ellieperlman.com. Now, before we start the show today, I wanted to personally invite you to two of the events that I'm going to be speaking at. The first one is called Multifamily Investor Summit. And that's a pretty cool three-day online conference that's going to happen June 27th until June 29th. And it's a great place for you not only to gain knowledge about real estate investing, but also to meet and network with other passive investors and with syndicators. So if you're going to use the promo code Ellie, which is E-L-L-I-E, you can get $100 off of the full access pass. You can find tickets at www.multifamilyinvestornation.com. Now, the second one is an event hosted by my good friend, Adam Adams, called Raising Money Summit. So that's going to happen in Denver on October 3rd until October 5th. And if you use the promo code Ellie again, you can get 30% off until the end of June. And then it goes down to 25% in July. So what I love about this one is that it's going to teach you everything you need to know about raising capital. So as a syndicator and an investor, you can learn the real secrets behind raising millions of dollars from investors and syndicators that actually did it. You're going to, you know, have takeaways from tactical strategies so you can go out and close more deals in less time. You're also going to discover the proven methods professionals use to create win-win deals and partnerships, and you'll be able to stop worrying about how you are going to fund your next real estate deal. So don't miss this premium conference. It can definitely be a game changer for you and help you to dominate any niche of real estate. So if you, again, want to use the promo code Ellie, you can get 30% off this month, the month of June. You can get tickets at www.raisingmoneysummit.com. All right. So I think by now we're ready to start the show. 
All right. So our guest today is Dmitry Chibatarev. Did I say it right, Dmitry? Very good. All right. Perfect. So Dmitry is the founder and general partner of Oxford Fund Managers, as well as the founder and CEO of Voshed Capital, an Orange County-based real estate, venture capital, and private equity investment company. Dmitry oversees all business development, operations, and investor relationships, which includes real estate, venture capital, and private equity deals. So he guides the company's acquisition strategy and mentors the management team in practices, processes, and techniques that facilitate and promotes strong investor-focused relationships. In addition to this, Dimitri is actively involved with several nonprofit organizations and is very passionate about research that involves the brain and diseases that are associated with it. Very interesting. So prior to Vosh Capital, Dimitri worked for Davida Healthcare Partners, leading business critical operations and Cambridge companies where he focused on strategic joint equity partnership. So today I'm going to talk with Dimitri about how he broke into the industrial game. Yes, we're going to talk about industrial properties, which I know is a very strong industry right now. It's doing pretty well. And I'm very, very curious to learn more about it the same way that, that you probably you know do. So with that, I would like to welcome Dimitri to the show. Hey, Dimitri, how are you? Hi, Ali. Thank you so much. I'm doing well. All right, great. So you're not far away from me. I'm in Santa Monica. You're in Orange County. Um, Newport Beach. Newport Beach. We're practically neighbors, I think, in California terms, right? That's right. <laughs> Almost. So I would love, you know, if we can kind of start with telling us a story of how you actually started buying industrial properties, because this is not something that, you know, most investors, you know, start with when they make their first steps in uh, real estate. That's right. So I've bought a fair amount of properties of all sorts. I got into real estate development very young. How young? I was 18. That's a story in itself. (laughs) <laughs> but early on in the cycle, we bought a lot of different properties, multifamily properties, retail, lots of land, zoned for various different things, did a lot of pre-development, rezoning things, entitling to higher density, and then industrial, of course. You know, we, we placed our bets, quote unquote, our bets heavily on multifamily and industrial early on in the cycle. And both have gone very well. That being said, industrial has this cycle done extremely well for us in Vegas, in Southern California. And then now, of course, we're doing projects in Massachusetts uh, with value-add industrial. I'd say what my first big success, what I would consider to be a very big success in the industrial space in general was we bought, this was 2013, we bought 33 acres of low-density industrial land off of the Strip in Vegas. Off of, uh, well, we sold it since then. So it was off of North Las Vegas Boulevard and Lamb, if you're familiar with Vegas. And what we did was we rezoned it from a low density industrial to a medium density industrial. And we bought it for, well, roughly $3 million, had maybe five dollars $600,000 in costs. And then we ended up selling it for around $8 million, wow. which was just ridiculous. In I mean, what period of time? Two years. Two years. Plus, that's Less insane. Than two years. Yeah. But how do you actually, and was that your first deal? 
or the most successful one? It wasn't my first deal. We, so we tell had me about your first deal. Oh, my first deal. Okay, let's see here. The deal that I would consider to be my first deal, I'll tell you how I got into real estate development. Yes. So I graduated high school at 16. I went to community college for two years. And then I dropped out to become a musician. I play mm. multiple instruments. Guitar, oh, piano, drums. I sing, I write several lute-like instruments. It's a hobby. <laughs> do you still do that today? I do. I do. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And, and whenever I'm at a political function or a business event, if there's a piano, I'm, I'll sit down at the piano. And, <laughs> and play a little bit. Very nice. So as I was 18, I, I dropped out of community college. My parents didn't like it very much. And I called up my siblings saying, look, I need a, I have two older siblings. My brother's five years older. My sister's seven years older. I said, look, I need a job for just a couple months, like six months, just to pay the bills and while I'm doing music career. And well, 11 years later, I have my own company. I was there for what, four years. And then we started Oxford Investment Partners, which became Bosch Capital. The first deal that I closed was... There was a company going under in Vegas. This was 2009 at this point. And they were losing about a $100 million portfolio. Everybody was losing in Vegas at the time, the mm. hardest hit market. And this particular developer was losing a very large portfolio. And I happened to be in the right place, right time. This is right before the kind of the age of the REOs. So what happened was this guy was losing about a $100 million pre-recession portfolio. And we ended up buying it at, nine and a half million. So about 10 cents, on, a little under 10 cents on the dollar. And it was mostly land, some retail, some multifamily, and then some of the land was industrial land. And so after that, then we started, of course, like everybody else buying up REOs. But that was really the first big deal that I structured. And when I say I structured, I mean, I was in the right place at the right time. And I brought it to the people who actually knew what they were doing and said, hey, guys, there's this guy who's, you know, losing his portfolio, and maybe we can buy it. What do you think? How did you know where to go? How did you know which people, you know, to approach? So my siblings were partnered with an Israeli, the senior partner was an Israeli gentleman named Michael Bash, who looking back was, you know, a mid-sized developer. There were some things that he did well. And then there were a lot of things that he did, you know, not so well. And that happens. But I happened to just have the relationships because of my siblings and they had some money, but then we went out and raised money. There was one group out of San Francisco. There was another group out of Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. And it was at that time raising money from small funds or family offices for Vegas deals. Everyone was saying, you guys are insane for investing in Vegas. You know, it was the hardest hit. And I think the major argument that we made was, well, look, is Vegas going to cease to exist or is it going to recover? Right now we're buying at pretty much 10 cents on the dollar. So if it recovers even 20, 30%, then we're going to do really well. Mm -hmm. And it recovered much more than that. So you know, we've surpassed previous market highs at this point in Vegas. So I'd say we did pretty well on it. Interesting. So it looks like you kind of stumbled on industrial and that was just as you said, you were just there at the right time, at the right place, and you saw an opportunity and you seized that opportunity. And you basically started investing in industrial properties ever since? 
Okay, so that was 2009. We did more deals on the multifamily, the retail side, and industrial as well. It was very opportunistic based on, mm. you know, we were buying from banks at the time. Like that deal, I don't remember if it was Bank of Chicago or Bank of Nevada that we bought that 33-acre deal in 2013. But, you know, we were buying REOs. So if it's a good deal and we understand the area and we can, you know, at, at the time fulfill what we consider to be our general business purpose, we were gonna do it. But then it just so happened that as we were looking at deals, you know, retail wasn't really performing to the way that we wanted it to, and it wasn't recovering like we expected it to. Multifamily was doing very well and had, you know, pretty stable growth in Vegas, in Southern California. But around 2013, 14, the growth, it was there, but, it seems to get more speculative, to me at least. And I mean, look, you know, we, we did make good money on multifamily and continue to do so. But then industrial just started taking off. And it's because of logistics. The cannabis industry in 2014 started going insane because of the Rohrbacher-Farr Amendment, data centers. You know, mm-hmm. industrial in general has seen a massive boom and so We started focusing solely on it in 2016, where we stopped doing any other types of real estate deals and started focusing solely on industrial existing build value add in California, in Nevada, and then now in Massachusetts. What do you think are one of the best things about investing in industrial properties? So right now we're buying in the Northeast. So Massachusetts, We've identified the markets in Michigan, Pennsylvania, et cetera. And I think the, the best, there are multiple levels to it. I'd say from the, the buy side, which look, you make the money on the buy side, right? You, you don't make money selling things. You make money buying things, right? I totally agree. But can you explain our listeners why you think that? Yes, absolutely. So the manufacturing market or the industrial market in, let's talk about just Massachusetts, but it really applies to the Northeast. Various markets or various verticals like paper, coal, steel, auto were massive markets in the 70s and 80s. And we're talking about this whole region was the industrial hub of the United States. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it's not the case. And so we're able to buy properties at, I mean, essentially REO prices. You're looking at it costs $120 a square foot to build it but we're buying it between 20 and $40 a square foot. So if you're buying an existing building at a massive discount and there's a general growth in the industrial sector nationwide and in these specific markets, the general strategy is going to do well. And then it's just a matter of how well will it do. So there's something there that I I want to make sure that I got right. So on the one hand, you're buying properties in a great discount. And it makes sense that this is a a very solid strategy. But on the other hand, if on the one hand, there is a decline in the industrial kind of in the demand, maybe because we have a lot of, you know, in China and the Philippines and a lot of other countries that basically, you know, company owners can outsource the production over there. And hence, you actually have a lot of land, a lot of properties, a lot of buildings that are not used. Okay, so you, I understand that. Actually, you got it at a discount. 
how from here are you able to bring in tenants and make money and sell it and be profitable if there's a reason why there's a decline in the industrial you know sector that allows you to buy a property you know for basically to buy discounted properties of course so markets don't change very quickly you know it's like moving a, an aircraft carrier mm-hmm. things happen over years and what we're seeing so if we split it up into several different segments for example logistics the expansion of logistics networks distribution hubs for companies like Amazon or other distribution large distributors on specifically in the logistics space so not talking about CPG or consumer product goods you see expansion in every state and it's been happening for the last six seven years to a large degree and it's expanding out in for example Massachusetts which has been driving the prices up steadily but not all at once so Rome wasn't built in a day right then if you look at emerging areas industries like for example the cannabis space mm-hmm. so cannabis in Massachusetts for example just went recreationally legal in 2016 same year as California in Michigan it only went legal last year but going recreationally legal doesn't mean that there's infrastructure on the political side so the the, the bureaucracy isn't in place so it takes several years for the bureaucracy to be in place and which means it takes several more years for operators or tenants to establish themselves in those markets mm-hmm. and operators and tenants need real estate of course so it, it takes time for there to be an expansion in rents and the expansion in rents leads to a growth in the actual value what we do is we try to control that as much as possible by having a tenant in tow from California because we've done these types of deals here in California back when it made sense to buy industrial in California and we bring those tenants out into in this case the Massachusetts market and we have obviously you know, good leases in place with personal guarantees and large deposits five year with several five-year extensions and we try to structure as best we can but then also give ourselves wiggle room we buy things in all equity without any debt and So should there be any unexpected hiccups, then we can reposition the asset and we have the ability to do so. And so if there's an investor that is interested in investing, diversifying and investing in industrial properties as well, when they look at the OM, the offering memorandum, the investor package that is being sent to them, What are the main three things that you recommend that they should pay attention to? So I'd say regardless of industrial or not, just I always recommend that for a specific industry, if we're talking about a specific industry, having an understanding of how the deal is structured. So whether it's a fund structure or an SPV structure, special purpose vehicle in an LLC, I always recommend doing background checks on whoever the operator is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cost a lot. And it's just a good idea to get that kind of stuff out of the way. When you're talking about the actual contracts themselves, the subscription operating documents, having a lawyer look over them, you know, a lot of people don't do that. 
I always tell people, look, you should have a lawyer look over any documents. It's a bad idea to be a penny rich pound poor. And then of course, you know, doing your due diligence on a specific market, a lot of resources are available. You know, if you look at Collier's reports, CBRE reports, these are all free reports. You know, people that are on the operation side, like yourself, like myself, you know, we have access to more current market data. Mm-hmm. But you can look at last quarter's report for free on Collier's and take a look at, okay, well, this is the best way to check if a broker is being honest, but it's the same thing with an operator, right? You want to see if what you're being told is valid or if you're just being sold something, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there are other ways out there. Yardi also has free quarterly and yearly reports. There's also IR. There's there's a lot of a lot of websites out there that are very reputable, very good, and they provide a lot of good information that is available and is basically free. So walk me through a when it comes to an industrial building. What is usually the business plan? I mean, and by business plan, I mean. How many years do you hold it? Do you like to buy vacant buildings and find a tenant? Or do you like to buy a building that is already occupied? And what is the exit strategy? Okay. So generally, we like to buy vacant buildings. They may be occupied by a tenant when we purchase them, but we'll make sure that that tenant is on a month-to-month while Mm -hmm. we set up a more stable tenant or what we would consider to be a more stable tenant. So for example, we just recently bought a 55,000 square foot building in Massachusetts. So I'll, I'll walk through that particular deal since it's already a done deal and, and mm-hmm. I can talk about it. So we buy a 55,000 square foot building. During our due diligence period, we do our standard due diligence checks, which would be you know, engineering, environmental, soil tests, structural, making sure that the building itself is what we're buying. And then we also have a contingency in place for permitting. In this case, for our tenant to be able to do recreational cannabis cultivation, manufacturing, and distribution. Once we get those permits in place from the local municipality, we'll close on the deal. So we'll purchase it. Then we give our tenant a nine-month free rent period where in our lease, they're responsible to do their own tenant improvements. And then, of course, we have our you know, different goals that they have to achieve within a certain timeline. I'm happy to talk about that in more depth, but And for how long do you hold the property usually? So we structure it as a three-year-long deal because generally it'll take about a year to set it up, Mm -hmm. cash flow it for a year, and then you have a year of figuring out whether you're going to sell it or not. Since we buy them in all equity, there's no pressure to sell on the back end. We have flexibility. Mm -hmm. So although the general structure that we put in place is to purchase and sell so that we can calculate an IRR and, you know, determine we can compare it to other investments. With an all equity structure, we have two other options. The obvious options, which would be one, to just continue holding it in all equity and just cash flow it. Mm-hmm. Or two, the better option, I suppose, which would be to refi out a portion of the equity, you know, 30, 40%, and then just cash flow it from there. Got it. So something that you said there actually caught my attention. You said, I mean, I think it's the second time you said it since we've started the interview, is that you buy properties 100% cash. Why would you do that? Why not leverage and take 60, 70, 75, you know, percent loan to value, place a loan, and then just raise the capital for the down payment? So that's the more common strategy here in America. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks do that. 
So there's the general reason and then there's the project specific reason. I'll talk about the general first. A lot of my friends, which are larger, very successful developers nationwide, portfolio-wide, they only have 20-30% leverage. So, in fact, someone was telling me today, I was talking to a friend of mine today, and he said, debt isn't your friend. (laughs) Debt, it's a multiplier that it'll take you up, but it'll take you down just as quickly. If there's no need to take debt on the front end, especially with a with a vacant asset that isn't cash flowing where you can't That's right. Yeah. That's more complicated. If the if the asset is cash flowing then you have enough money to pay for the debt and for pay for expenses, but if it's if you don't have any cash flow for an entire year then it changes the game a bit. I understand. All right. So it's it's a it's a matter of we could take a bridge loan. And in fact, we are offered debt far too frequently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The way I see it is this. We always have the option to refi on the back end. So to take the risk on the front end, it doesn't make sense to me. So mm-hmm. I personally don't want to take those types of risks, especially because like we'll put in 10% of our own equity. And yeah, that's, that's pretty big money, but we're also bringing in 90% from investors. So the, you know, they were joking around earlier, happy LPs are, are the most important part. And the one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to lose <laughs> investors' money. So I'd rather take the safer approach on the front end, refi out on the back end, and that way I always look good. Yeah, that, that sounds interesting. What do you think in the industry in, in general, when it comes to industrial properties, what do you think are the returns, the cash on cash and IRR returns, that what you see right now in the market? Okay, so if you're talking about traditional industrial then you're talking about a mid-teens IRR is what you're going to be shooting for. And it depends on the market, of course. I was just about to ask, what is traditional versus non-traditional industrial? So I'd say traditional is anything that isn't cannabis. Oh, (laughs) I see. Okay. And then cannabis, because cannabis is an emerging sector. So I see. Okay. I I consider it to be non-traditional, though it's very quickly becoming traditional in many ways. But yeah, no, for, for traditional, for logistics, for data centers, for, you know, traditional kind of big box I see. industrial tenants, you're really looking at, you know, mid-teens levered to 20% IRR. So a little bit better than multifamily. And again, it depends on the market. You're, you're going to see comparable things. The fluctuation in rents is much less than multifamily because, well, the rent for industrial simply is lower. And so... It's lower rent, lower fluctuation. Mm-hmm. In the cannabis space, that's not the case. In fact, it's quite literally the opposite. There's a lot of fluctuation. What generally happens is I'm going to use my hands on this one. When a market first emerges, like, like Massachusetts, you have an increase in rent. So let's say it goes from you know, 60 cents to $1.50 per square foot. And then it drops down to about you know, $1.10 to $1.00 after two, three years. And that's just because people get so excited. They think, oh, I'm going to make so much money in this cannabis space. And everybody buys up real estate for far too much. And then they lose it because they lever up. Mm-hmm. And they aren't able to, to stabilize a tenant at such a high rate. Like here in Costa Mesa, you know, we're, we're here in California. In Costa Mesa, if a cannabis tenant wants to lease an industrial building for manufacturing or for distribution, it's like seven eight dollars a foot per month 
just how is that sustainable? There's no way. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And so, you know, we, we kind of talked about the returns and general business plans when it comes to industrial. Where do you see, and that will be kind of the last question, you know, for the interview, but where do you see the industry going in the next five years? So I see places like California and even Nevada. I don't see a dip in the industrial space. I mm-hmm. see I see stagnation definitely mm-hmm. will happen because it's just grown so much. And I, I think that's probably a more conservative view. I've heard people say that even in a recession environment, it'll still grow, which is possible, but I, I'm skeptical there. But I do see growth in, if you take a look at the Northeast, the reason that we're investing so heavily over there is because the market itself for such a long period of time has been in a regional recession, quote unquote, that there's really no further it can drop. In fact, because of things like the trade war, we're seeing a lot of even traditional industrial coming back. Mm -hmm. So even in a recession environment, I see maybe not exponential growth, but stable growth in those markets. On the industrial side. Mm-hmm. All right. Very nice. Very nice. Well, thank you, Dimitri, so much for sharing, you know, your information and your background about the industrial, you know, kind of space. So I really appreciate it. And if listeners would like to reach out to you, where can they find you? They can find me on my website at voscht.com. That's V-O-S-H-T.com. And if they want to reach out to any member of my team, they can do so. And it's just generally our name at Vosh.com. All right. Perfect. And Dimitri is spelled D-M-I-T-R-I-Y. So it's not, it's not a very common, you know, kind of spelling, but in case you want to reach out to us and that, that's basically the way. All right, Dimitri, thank you again. Thank you so much. It was fun chatting with you. And, you know, it was really, really great to, I feel I'm a little bit smarter after, you know, talking with you about the industrial space. So I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Ellie. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.